there are certain people in the world that are going to do a crazy amount. They're going to be insanely productive and are going to do a crazy amount of good and are going to march us forward and be insanely productive no matter what they do. And if that is our client base and our sole mission as a company is to take the people that are doing the most in the world already and give them leverage to help them do more. And sometimes up to like, you know, 10, 20, 30 times more than they thought that they could do because we teach them how to delegate appropriately. We teach them how to, you know, let everything else fall away from them. And we can do that while producing the best executive assistance in the world and giving people exactly like what Robert said from economically disenfranchised places in the world and connecting them to these people and letting them be the right hand person and changing their families' lives and and their their entire trajectory in life. That is like uh, that's the whole reason I joined. That's the whole it's unbelievably exciting to me. And it is it's you have this opportunity to do this incredible good on both sides. And it's you know, that's where I want that's what I want us to become. Hello again, my friends, and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen, and I'm living proof that anyone can start a podcast. This show explores technology, investing, entrepreneurship, and personal growth that will help you and the rest of humanity create a brighter, more abundant future. This podcast is one of the few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. One of the biggest leaps of leverage in my entire life came when I started working with an EA, an executive assistant that I hired through Athena. Today, I'm talking with two of the leaders at Athena, the company I personally use and love. This episode is all about executive assistants, personal leverage, the personal corporation, and advanced delegation systems. Uh, We explore the people and the playbooks behind Athena, a company completely dedicated to providing top caliber executive assistance. Today, all those assistants are from the Philippines, though they expect to expand to other structurally disadvantaged countries in the future. Today, the guests are Robert Hayes, Athena's CEO, and Chris Ho, the chief client officer. Robert has an excellent track record working in the Philippines, growing several companies there, living there for many years. Most notably, Task Us grew to like north of 25,000 employees. A really incredible success story there. Uh, He joined Athena at the very early stages uh, with the goal of repeating that performance and growing to 10,000 plus jobs in, in the decade ahead. Chris previously was the co-founder of Able Tribe, a Canadian software startup for financial education at the point of payroll, which is a very interesting idea. Able Tribe was acquired by Humi in 2017, where Chris served as the VP of client experience. Uh, We talk a little bit about that job and the path and the techniques that he uses to do that job incredibly effectively. He was also, fun fact, on the Terra Mystica World Championship team in 2021. If you are a board gamer, you will know that that is an exciting thing. In this episode, we focus mostly on entirely creative ways that EAs can add value to their clients' lives. Um, These playbooks for advanced delegation, some of the stories that they've seen at Athena, some things that Robert and uh, Chris do personally, which I have are just, I find so exciting. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about Athena, please open your browser, type in athenago.com and sign up. There's often a wait list to get matched with EAs. So plan ahead, sign up right now today. There's no commitment required and you will learn something about delegation just by going through that quick application. Uh, Once more, athenago.com. It's the first link in the show notes. Be sure to list me, Eric Jorgensen, as your refer. I will earn a referral from that. Uh, It does not cost you any more, but I will never ever take referrals from a product or a company that I 
don't believe in. I managed to spend a few days on the beaches of the Philippines with these guys and with the rest of the executives and EAs at Athena. I was blown away by what they're doing. I'm very excited to be a small part and an evangelist and a contributor to that. And I'm excited to share a bit of that experience and what I learned there here with you today. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. I'm very excited to have both of you guys here. This is going to be an incredibly fun podcast. And it's necessary to have both of you because of your Canadian sensibilities will not allow you to brag on yourselves. So I'm just going to turn you on each other to bring out the best in each other. Is that is that fair? Sounds good. Very fair. Okay. I got, uh, we got Robert Hayes, the CEO of Athena. Welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it, Eric. Super excited to be here. And we got Chris Ho over here, who's the chief client officer of Athena. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for having us. Okay. Now we're, now we're all identified. We're ready to go. I want to do quick like backgrounds of you guys, because I think you both have really interesting stories. And maybe Chris, since you're like the instigator here, do you mind going first and telling us like how you ended up as chief client officer of Athena and maybe what a chief client officer does? Yeah, for sure. So just a little bit about my background. I started my career in consulting and pretty quickly after that pivoted into starting my own company. And the first company that I started was with a gentleman named Julian Roger. And we started a small Canadian payroll startup. And the idea of it, or a, a huge part of the mission of that company, was to build a payroll system that was going to help people and help Canadians save and help Canadians save. And we thought that doing financial literacy at the point of payroll was going to be the only way that you could actually achieve that because you could get people's money before they got it and you know help them make better decisions. Mm. And so <laughs> we dove into that and, and worked on that for a, a bunch of years and, and had some, some big wins and some big losses along the way, but eventually ended up accepting an acquisition offer from a company called Humi. Humi was out of Y Combinator. It is a Canadian HR and payroll software company, very similar to like a Gusto or a Zenefits or a Rippling, but much smaller on the Canadian, sca uh, Canadian stage. And so joined that company and worked there for many years. And I was absolutely loving it. And uh, jo uh, Jonathan, who's uh, our founder of Athena here, Jonathan and Robert, wore me down over the course of, of, of many months uh, last year and, <laughs> and, you know, sold me on this, this incredible vision, which I won't, well, I'll let Robert kind of go into the vision and mission of Athena because he'll tell it better than I will. But they sold me on, on coming in and helping them change the world over here at Athena. So I, I, I jumped over, been an incredible ride over the, the past eight months or so. And, and then you asked me, you know, what does a, a chief client officer do? And I think that's an awesome question because it's, you know, it's not necessarily a new role, but it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent for, for companies, especially companies that, well, primarily companies that have recurring revenue business, they're trying to become more and more client centric, right? Because, you know, their entire business model or their entire revenue model is based on clients staying happy and continuing to do business with them. So the, the, to break it down and make it um, extremely clear, the, there's two sides to what a chief client officer does or what you know, a head of client would do at a company. There's the hard side and the soft side. On the hard side, really what you are, are you're a steward of a portfolio of annuities, right? Because every recurring revenue business has annuities and that's how their business runs. That's how they operate. An annuity, an annuity for, for those that don't know, is literally just any amount of money that recurs. It's supposed to be on an annual basis. For, for us, it's on a monthly basis. And so 
and you know there's a lot of financial instruments that are annuities and just like uh, at a company a revenue model could be recurring revenue on a, a monthly or an annual basis but the hard side responsibility and the only responsibility of a chief client officer is to make sure that the expected value of those annuities is growing rather than shrinking and so you know that's like the hard hard side of it right every month um every single month for us our annuities or our recurring revenue has a chance of recurring or expanding or contracting or stopping entirely right and so what we do is we run programs and create a client service environment or a client experience that help those uh, recurring revenue or those rec- that those recurring revenue amounts expand or continue as opposed to contract or stop <laughs> and building a world class client program is all about building those systems and processes that expand and increase the expected value of that client portfolio now the soft side of it is that it's an entirely people centric role and you have to be like desperately passionate about providing a really good client experience and making people happy and making people feel um like they are something different than what they would be without your service and one of the coolest analogies that i heard that i've seen and i i will have to find out who who said this because it wasn't my own idea and i i just don't remember what the source is but someone once it told is me now. that it's yours yeah, it's just, just mine it. now <laughs> someone someone once told me that you know great client service is you know giving people medicine for their pain and candy for their soul and so you're trying to give people a medicine that tastes like candy so they feel you know they they feel good uh, and smile all while act, you're actually solving their problems because a lot of companies either do one or the other right they can solve your problems and you know it sucks to work with them just like our telco right our telecom services they're they're actually like it's an amazing service right if you think about it but everyone hates them <laughs> it's you know because there's no no candy side to it and then of course i'm sure you've run into a lot of especially startup companies where you know they're really nice and they're like trying their hardest but like it just you can't work with them cuz there's there's no medicine there right they're not solving any pain so that's uh that's the that's the role that i i run here at athena i like that structure a lot and i'm i'm interested to like dig into that in the context of athena once we kind of set that stage too but robert let's do let's do your like kind of background story what was your what was your road into athena you know, I, I started up in probably the most unsexy industry in the whole world, which is call centers and outsourcing. And so uh, a few years ago, <laughs> I won't date myself, when it was fashionable to do so, Americans used to outsource to, to Canada a lot. And then that's when I first got tied up in, into the uh, outsourcing industry. Ended up as a young man in a company and learning that space and going, hey, this job is pretty cool. You get to learn leadership at a very er- young age. So I, I had my first team of 25 people working for me at the age of 22. And it gave me uh, just a tremendous opportunity to kind of like not only get deep experience with leadership, but kind of grow that as time went on. Years later, I ended up in the Philippines. My company sent me out there to actually build a location in the Philippines. And that was in 2008. And that was my first introduction to kind of uh, offshoring in the sense of like, you know, heading overseas. And so I spent quite a few years there, about five years um, at that company, really learning uh, how to set up and establish buildings, how to work with local government units, you know, how to deal with tax treaties and all sorts of fun stuff. And, and as a young man, it was, you know, kind of get smashed with a sack of hammers to some degree. <laughs> I learned everything from different cultures to, you know, different leadership skills as I did it. When you do that, what I, what I, I found was I got really uh, disgruntled with kind of typical leadership and typical business in the outsourcing space. 
So I got frustrated with kind of very old, you know, kind of 1980s leadership tactics that were constantly being used, especially overseas, you know, cutting costs quarter to quarter, that type of thing. Yeah, I was going to say, what does that imply? Like the 80s, is that kind of like a wreck and yank, like very top down sort of? Yeah. Well, you, you, you see it. Per- performance management practices is probably the easiest, but there, there's obviously many, many different things. But, you know, you have three chances and you're gone, right? Oh, wait a minute. Our quarterly EBITDA dropped by 2%. We're riffing, you know, 150 people tomorrow, right? You know, that type of thing, right? And then every single time you turn around, just cutting costs on things that just have a ripple effect to the employee population and to the way that the business operates. And so I, I was stunned kind of at the end of that journey, because my program, so I would have, at the end of it, I had about 5,000 people working for me. And what I found was I was the most profitable by far, yet I was the person who also spent a lot, didn't engage in a lot of those practices. And I just became, I guess, a little disgruntled with the fact that I didn't think that those organizations had it in them to change. And so that's when I started looking for a company that, that would embody that spirit, would be willing to have that change, would take a risk, and that's when I stumbled across Taskus, where I decided to take a little bit of a wild jump at the time. Now it looks like a very good decision, but back then it was it was a new company. They were starting out. The founders were, were two really good guys, and I just believed them and knew that that they cared and that they wanted to make a difference. And so, was able to take my skill in the industry, you know, the leadership experience I had over those years, and and to jump into Taskus and had a very very positive run with them. You know, trying to change the way we treat people, ch- change the way we do performance management build really nice offices, right? And we saw a lot of attraction from a lot of great technical companies, you know, a, a lot of very popular tech companies joined with Taskus over the years after that. And it got to a size and scale where I felt like it wasn't quite for me anymore. I still dearly love the company, still really love the founders. I think they're still doing great things, but you know, you just reach that point where you think um, I'd be better off taking risks or, you know, in something a little bit of a smaller scale. And so I decided to take a break. I told my wife at the time, you know, should I retire? You know, what should I do? And of course, I get introduced to Jonathan through through a friend. And me and him start talking about this little company that he accidentally started um, called Athena. And it was accidentally started for probably the most admirable reason, which sold me on the company in the first place, which was because he wanted to save people's jobs. And so there was a layoff that took place at another company. And that layoff, you know, affected these folks because they were going from, believe it or not, from a remote work environment back into the office. This is pre-COVID. And he wanted to save save their jobs. And so I just always had an affinity for, for that type of leadership. And so that's why me and him really hit it off and decided to start this, this thing called Athena and really get it going. And so I'm sure we'll dive into more of, of what Athena is doing today, what we stand for and, and what our mission is. But that's kind of the journey that that got me here. Yeah, I like it. And, and we encounter our first battle with humility because you did not mention the scale that Taskus reached, which was pretty incredible. I think you said somewhere on the order of 30,000 employees. Uh, well, when I, when I left, I had about 20,000 people in my organization. I think now they're probably 40,000. <laughs> um, so I, I think their earnings call was just the other day. I, I didn't look too much in detail, but yeah, they're... they're uh, very large and successful company and, and continuing to be even more successful. But yeah, when I, when I decided to move on at about 20,000 people in the organization, 
I was the chief operating officer, so I had operations, data science, project management, facilities, all, all within my purview. And, and those the clients on that in that context are mostly larger organizations, so not a consumer brand, but a ton of employees. I think pretty well known in, within the Philippines for just being such a large employer too. Yeah, this really strong Glassdoor ratings, some of the best in the industry. You know, we pioneered a lot of different employee benefits, which now seem commonplace, but at the time were were unheard of, right? So. A lot of those companies, like a lot of our competitors, like, like I said, you know, I've been to a lot of call centers in my life and you would see really old, dusty, unclean, you know, kind of shops. And we pioneered just, you know, daycares in the facility, right? Retirement plans. We pioneered just all kinds of different benefits for like LGBTQ support, you know, for common law partners with HMO, which, you know, especially overseas, a lot of these practices were not normal. And so, you know, we launched a lot of those things over the years to just really build that bond and, and, and show that, you know, we're taking care of people, right? And, and that it's very possible to be very successful and make a lot of money at the same time. So. Yeah, I mean, with, with the long run orientation, they're damn near the same thing, but uh, a lot of people don't think that way. Robert, what was it about um, Chris that made you so persistent in your, in your recruiting efforts? He, he, feels, uh, he feels like he was still kind of swooned and pursued. I'm not sure what the right verb is there, but I know it's an extended thing. And it's clear to me that Chris is wonderful, but I'm, I'm curious what you, maybe what was the profile? What was the role or why you were so determined to work together? Yeah. You know, interviews are, are a really tricky thing. You know, there's a magic question or a magic answer or, you know, some sort of magic thing that you can do to, to do interviews better than anybody else. You know, I, I I've thought about it long and hard and, and tried to give advice many times. And I think there's just two things that it comes down to. It comes down to passions and insecurities. And if you understand passions, then you can better understand insecurities of people. And everybody has, right? Everybody has both of them. But if you can't understand the passions and insecurities, you're getting a false representation of who the person is, which is a liability when it comes to the hiring process. And so I I would just say probably the thing that stood out to Chris the most was that just like a deep, clear passion and just excitement for for what he wants to get done, right? And so when you do that, when you find out what that passion is, then you go, oh, okay, I understand who this person is. I know that the passion is going to be there. I know what they want to accomplish with their life, where they want to go, right? And when you pour into these things, you know, oftentimes you can see the depth of somebody's passion, right? I, I use this as an example quite often where I say to people, like, if you get an interview and somebody's a huge Pokemon card collector, it's actually very relevant to the process because you can understand the depth to which the passion for Pokemon cards goes, right? And if they start pulling out spreadsheets of Pokemon card collections and like they've got them graded and they understand the code, you know what I mean? Like that's a really positive thing because then you understand a lot more about that person, what they're capable of and what gets them excited for life. And so I think, you know, come back to Chris, all that stood out. He pulled out some spreadsheets. I won't say what they're about, but... um, (laughs) He certainly showed a lot of passion through the process. And I think it just got us excited that that a couple of passionate people together could just accomplish really, really great things. Yeah, I, I, I see that. Chris and I have spent a few hours just like excitedly yelling to each other about big problems and technologies to solve in the world. And I don't know, I, I really like the model of kind of interviewing for intensity. Like it doesn't matter what the interest is, but like if you are capable of intense interest and passion about a thing, then like you'll probably be good at whatever it is we aim you at if you care about what we aim you at, right? And I know, (laughs) 
I, I don't know if I can say what the, the spreadsheets were about. Like only you have seen the spreadsheets, but I know that I had a similar experience of being like, Hey, do you play board games? And Chris was like, yeah, I really like board games. And I was like, Oh, which ones do you play? He's like, Oh, I play a couple of these. And then like nine questions later, we reach, we find out that he's like a world champion in like multiple world or work, worker placement games or something like that. It was, I was like, Oh, depth of intensity and interest. Uh, <laughs> like oh yeah all right um which now we sound like you know chris sacco saying like of course travis kalanick was going to make uber work he's really good at weed bowling or whatever it was just like a real story they told which maybe yeah. fits the model chris in one of our our numerous conversations i feel like before i had you like pitched me on robert before i got to meet robert and you were like this dude is an operator and just like underlined verbally operator a few times and like what is it uh, that kind of what distinguishes him from other people that you've worked with that makes him more effective or more high impact or more exciting to kind of build a company like this with over, over a long run? I think it's, it's the combination of Robert being an operator and a leader that is so impressive because I think people will sometimes have one without the other. I, I think it's, you know, people can imagine their own archetypes of, of what a leader would look like versus an operator. And being able to meld those together is just so rare, I think, because you need to be able to zoom in and zoom out appropriately. I actually find that the hardest thing to do in my own career, like this own my own leap that I, I take, you know, managing a bigger latitude, right? When you manage a, a wider scope, you have to zoom out because you need to have a good understanding of what's going on around you. And then you also have to zoom in um, and be micro sometimes to make sure that you don't let some of the smaller things slip through the cracks. And I've just never seen anyone in my entire life be better at that than Robert. And I think that a lot of that comes with a, I mean, just like the horsepower, but B, you know, running a 20,000 person org and, and kind of getting the pattern recognition in right of what is important to look at versus not. And it's funny because, you know, Robert and I are both strong willed in different ways and we don't always agree. And I, I will say this to his credit is like, I both smirking I, I, my, like, you know, if I was to, if you, there was some like magical scoreboard that, you know, every time in your life you got into a disagreement with someone, you had a scoreboard. I feel like I'm like, you know, I win against almost everyone that I know. And, 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 you know, I say that not humbly for, for a moment because I feel like I'm usually right about stuff and I'm just like, like losing by a million miles to Robert. Like it feels like <laughs> every time we get into a disagreement about something, he ends up being like very right. And it's really, really cool because then there's this huge amount of trust that gets built up around that too, because you see the, like the deep, deep experience around what we should be focused on and then just being relentless on keeping everyone focused and keeping everyone down, you know, the right path while making people feel like it's important and while making people feel like, you know, they have something to do with it, which I think is a huge part of it. Right. See, here's the, here's the thing though, Eric. Um, like, I don't even know we're in disagreements. <laughs> that's, how, that's how good of a CCO he is, right? Like I, I didn't even know there was a disagreement. He's got the scoreboard going and it's an invisible. Just, uh, you know, it's, um, he's got a spreadsheet of it. You know, he's <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that client service instinct. You didn't even know, you didn't even know you were in trouble. Chris, I've had that feeling where I'm just like, whether it's an hour later or a year later, just being like, Oh, thank God he's the CEO or she's the CEO. Like, they have such better context for that decision that I felt like I had high conviction on, but you just have the reps or the perspective or 
you know, and Robert, you've been in this industry for your whole career in a high intensity way. So it, it really kind of pays off, I think, in, in, instinctually or not to see something like this grow. Yeah, it, it's just there, there really is an art, I think, to leadership. And I think watching a lot of things like I, you know, sometimes I think Chris gets the most stunned when I start to tell him stories of stuff that we've dealt with before. So that it's it's always funny to hear him like, hey, I've got a crazy one for you. And I'm like, that's not crazy. Try <laughs> <laughs> again. Right. And so like, you know, it's just leadership and, and people are, are, you know, I just think a very diverse, right? And so there's so many examples that you get to see and so many mistakes that you get to make. And I mean, like that, that's why I say I was very fortunate to be in the industry I was in, because although it was very unsexy, not a lot of people wanted to be in it. It was, you know, kind of frowned upon just gave me tremendous leadership experience at a very young age, which allowed me to kind of advance down that path very, very quickly, right? So, you know, you name what the specific employee issue is, I, I have seen it probably a couple times, right? And so it seems like gut instinct, but it's it's almost like more just pattern recognition, right? So, yeah, it, it seems like that was a huge asset to uh, it, the stunning speed of Athena for the last year or so like you has it been about a year since you joined robert maybe yeah just over a just year, over a year april, now. Okay. Middle april, yeah. so will, will you take us through kind of your your first year and like what, what where athena was at when you joined and kind of catch us up through today so yeah about a year ago me and jonathan sat down and you know said like what do we want this thing to be where do we want to go right and scale and scope, you know, was something that that he was very interested in. And I mean, that that's kind of my forte. So we sat down, we kind of built out a model, right? So we first uh, sat down and agreed. And I've worked with a lot of founders over the years. Uh, the second thing we had to do was sit down and talk about rules of engagement, um, how we're going to work together, where ownership lay uh, lays within the business, you know, who gets input on what, right? Because, you know, oftentimes when you're working with founders and you're building a business, a lot of confrontation can pop up, right? So you need kind of that foundation of trust and that relationship kind of set clearly at the beginning. I've, I've done a lot of that over my life and I much prefer to have the rules of engagement there so that we both understand the expectations of each other. And so, yeah, built the map, built the rules of engagement, and then it's time to get going, right? So, so before sorry, we do, before we do that, I feel like I, I, it's possible that I skipped a step since we obviously know what Athena is, but, but maybe like, to the uninitiated, how would you describe Athena and what was sort of the the pitch, I guess, that brought you into the company to even yeah. like sort of entertain talking with Jonathan and getting excited about it in the first place? Yeah, I mentioned the the common values first, right? Because that's always very important for me. You know, both of both of us have been kind of through big growth stories of successful companies. So I think first off, getting common values is actually kind of difficult. And so you know, why he started the company, I think that spoke to his values. We got our families together, right? So my wife and kids, his wife and kids, right? And we just say, you know, is this something that can stand the, the test of time, right? So we built a relationship that way, you know, spent a little bit of time uh, together. And then, you know, kind of sat down and talked about shared visions. And that, that kind of primed us. Now, the shared vision itself specifically was, you know, Jonathan had set up a shop with Thumbtack, um, which is what ultimately became kind of this fledgling Athena uh, group. And there was about 80 people that he had kind of in this company that he had saved their jobs. And so when he spoke to me, he goes, you know, Robert, there's this absolutely massively untapped market, which is people who desperately want work. And then there's this large group of people who are out there who desperately need work, they need, you know, 
advanced delegation techniques. There's so much possibility. There's so much market here that's completely untapped. All my friends love it. You know, all the employees really love it. Like if we could put some sort of structure to this, um, you know, that this could be something extremely special. And so Jonathan's very excited about a lot of the advanced delegation practices that, that he had come up with or that some of his peers had come up with. And he was basically networking through those groups going like, wow, look at all of this that is possible if we can just get this machine built properly. And then my, my excitement to pair with it really comes from the fact that when I was a young executive, I started with an EA and I thought I was, there's no way I need an EA because my, my workhorse level, like I was one of those guys that would work 20 hour days, six days a week. Like, you know, I would burn the candle at both ends. Right. And there was a big presentation to a, a large fortune 500 company and I got some help from somebody. It wasn't my EA, it was somebody else's EA. And they did an absolutely fantastic job. And they basically, you know, turned this presentation around for me in, in no time. And I remember at that moment going, damn, how stubborn am I? <laughs> and I think a lot of executives go through that, right? Where they think that if you're young and you're, you know, you're just really going after a successful life and you're trying to build it, you think you can always do it best and delegation basically just results in failure. And so when me and Jonathan first started talking about those kind of advanced, excited stuff, my mind as an operator went back to that time for me when I first dove into delegation. And I thought, wow, e even if the advanced delegation techniques are not quite there yet, there is certainly a huge market of guys who were in the, or girls or whoever were in the same position where I was, right? Where I was stubborn where I was uh, not willing to accept help. Wouldn't it be great if we could be that company that could, that could help folks, right? And so that, that was kind of the primary. And then on the back end, I just, I think I've been so fortunate that continuing to give jobs to people throughout my career is, is probably one of the things I'm the absolute proudest of. And not only jobs to people, but jobs to people who really, really desperately need it. And I, I, there's a moment in my life that, that always stands out for me because I lived in the Philippines for 10 years. And it, this is at my pre my two companies ago, I used to drive uh, and I used to work graveyard shifts for the first six years that I was there. And I would drive down the street at 7pm going to work. And I, I had a young child at the time, two, two years old, and I would drive to work and there would be this one child on the side of the street with just an adult t shirt on basically going from car to car begging, right. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to like see that kind of poverty on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it breaks your heart that that's the way the world truly is. But especially when you've got your own kid at home to compare, right? But what I would say is, you know, folks over there desperately need the help. When they get the jobs, they can pay to get out of that poverty. And I just saw the difference that, that our, our companies, even the companies that weren't the best, were making over there by giving jobs. And so yeah, part of my passion to continue to keep putting in the hours to keep working really does stem from the fact that I think if there's companies that behave well and that go to those places and see it as a tremendous opportunity to set the tone and take care of people at the same time as delivering excellent service to the clients, I just think it's an extremely positive thing to accomplish. And, and it's a moment of, it's a, it's a very big motivating factor, I think, for me overall to continue. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And that feels similarly, and it makes it difficult to empathize sometimes with the people who seem seem to think there's some inherent moral problem with employing someone outside your 
native country. Like that, that seems like illogical and somewhat insane to me. And, and I kind of, I try to empathize with that view sometimes, but it's, you know, especially in this context, when you think about how much of an impact you can have by bringing some of the, you know, well-developed practices and perks and, you know, I feel like sometimes arbitrage has a negative connotation. It's like very positive arbitrage. Like you can have a significant, significant impact as an average person by contributing in the, in the Philippines and, and hiring someone there or in a place like it. Yeah, yeah, it's not just the Philippines. I mean, I think it, it, the Philippines is there. There's certain things about the Philippines that make it a great place to to be. I mean, there's a lot of other logistical components that I think that make the Philippines great. But I just think um, going to economically disenfranchised locations. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful things about technology these days, right? I mean, you know, now we can reach out and get the best of the best, right? Of of people from any region, right? And so I, it's really interesting. I think you think if you have the top 10% of people in the US are just amazingly talented, high IQ, just passionate, all this, right? In my opinion, the same exists in every single country. But when you come to a country like the US, it's extremely competitive to get that level of talent, right? And so whatever arena you enter into, some of that talent is sitting there with no job, right? In some of those markets. And so it just makes so much sense that if you want that top tier talent, why not go to somewhere where that talent is sitting there not doing anything, right? And so I, I don't think, you know, from my experience in the different countries, and, and when I was with Taskus, we worked with India and Greece and Ireland and Mexico and, and all over. And I kind of see the same thing, that there can be cultural nuances that can make some things difficult. But for the most part, there's like extremely skilled people waiting the opportunity and you know the philippines is a great place but I, I, there's lots of other places that are equally excellent yeah absolutely so chris maybe what was it for you that drew you in was it was it jonathan and you, you had a similar alignment was it knowing that robert was going to kind of head this thing up and at, at what point in the past year or so in, in robert's reign did you join so i joined in september i think my start date was september 6th and I mean, I think throughout the throughout the interview process and throughout the process of of these these two guys coming to to bring me into the fold, I was really really excited about a a couple of different things. The first is that I think you have to to, to work at a company like Athena, and, and you know we touched on it, right? We're we're connecting people around the world, which I think is really really powerful. And I think some of the things that you have to believe is that you have to believe that like Robert said, people all around the world are more or less equal, right? That there aren't certain parts of the world that are inherently better or smarter than, than other places in the world. I think you have to also believe that worldwide talent is going to continue to get harder to find rather than easier. And I think there's, there's actually like a, that sounds when someone just says it like that, it's easy to nod and agree, but there's a whole contingent of people that would, would think that talent is going to get easier to find, right? Because there's going to be unemployment from AI and, you know, machine learning and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm firmly in the camp that talent are, and, and good talent is going to continually get more and more competitive. And then I think that the other thing that you have to believe is that, you know, like I said, we're connecting the world and that people are, are no one place is better than the others. You have to believe that people around the world can actually work together. And, you know, you use the term arbitrage and I, I don't want to explore that too deeply necessarily, but what I, what I do want to talk a little bit about is the fact that 
you, I think there, there are some people that have this notion that when you work with someone across the world, you're taking advantage of them in some way, shape or form. Right. There seem, and, to be, there seem to be some people now who just e- equate the word hire with the word exploit, which just is not those those words are not the same word. <laughs> and I'm fully with you. And I, I think that it, it what Robert and Jonathan's vision and what they were describing to me was so beautiful to me. And I and I, I don't say that lightly or I'm not trying to make it like dramatized or anything like that. It was a big decision for me to to come and join up. And it was truly beautiful to me that you know, what they described to me was we're going to connect these incredible people across the world. We're going to connect some of the best and brightest in the Philippines and, you know, perhaps other nations as well with some of the best and brightest principals or executives some people that are like making legitimate change all around the world. We're going to connect them together. We're going to give people, uh, you know, a good sense of how small the world can be. And we're going to teach these people, both the clients and the EAs, how to use their time better and how to, you know, do more together. like do more together. Like it's actually so crazy if you just think about it like that. Right. But you can get everyone together in such a way that it's really, really beautiful because you're changing two lives at once and it can be very transformative. So it's just so exciting for me. The the closer I have gotten to it and, and the bigger my sort of sample size has gotten, you know, I know my experience with Athena has been great and I know my EA is wonderful and like very grateful for the opportunity and is, is like learning and excited but seeing meeting hundreds of other EAs and seeing that broadly has like give me a, a similar to your describing like a deep sense of the beauty of the win-win that that you guys are facilitating here which i think is incredibly cool and it's and there's so maybe i hope that's what we can kind of get into now like maybe in the context of of the exciting past year you guys have had but like everything that goes into creating a great experience on both sides right for your clients and for EAs it's a lot more than I feel like the simplified look is like, oh, it's a staffing company. Like you make a match and there is just so, so, so much more um, that goes into both sides of this and on all the kind of magic in the middle that I'm sure. And I know you have seen firsthand the, all of the work that you guys have put into that. There's a lot. And I, I, I think it's important to start with, you know, when you when you first say, you know, just hiring you know, hiring somebody, right? First off, that's a difficult process on its own, right? But but certainly that that is uh, fairly common. There's also the the method, which I think is an interesting thing. Even having a one-to-one relationship or assigning a person uh, to another person or making that match, that's not something that I think the industry necessarily agrees on, right? So one of, one of the things the industry, I think, agrees on is you take a task, you send it somewhere, right? It gets done, it comes back, right? That's kind of the, the the fundamental agreement of the industry today. And one thing that Athena, I think, has decided is that the relationship and the expectations matter a lot, right? If you don't have that relationship built, if you those expectations haven't been set over time, if that communication is tone is not set correctly, that, that a lot can be missed. And so I, I think one of the first things we've done is we said, no, this is the way to do it. And so We've, we've made that kind of clear that, you know, it's going to be rocky. There's going to be some mismatches up early, right? It's going to be, you know, there's going to be a learning phase, as I'm sure you, you had with your EA, Eric. But, but it's fundamental to go through that behavior change because otherwise you can't get to this kind of elite level of delegation where you have teams and practices and expectations being continually met. And so I think first off of all the other organizations we've seen, that's not very common that they're that firm on that. And it's not very common that 
This is a personal and professional relationship. This isn't just rudimentary tasks or calendar management, that it's a collection of different things with a quest to kind of like amplify yourself over a longer period of time. That's the premise of the start for Athena. So I don't know if I articulated that great. Chris Chris is probably better with the words, but I I do think that that's an important part to call out because I, I don't see a lot of people, especially who are overseas working that way. I, I've seen, you know, onshore folks, companies doing some of that, but very, very few offshore. More, more often than not, they either charge per hour per task and the relationship doesn't stay consistent for a long period of time. That's one of the interesting hard stances as a brand and a service that I feel like Athena took, which is like, we are full-time long-term matches only. And I actually kind of dug in on that at first. I was kind of like, oh, I, I don't think I need a full-time person. Like I can probably get away with 10 hours a week. And it was such a, you are so correct to hold that line. Because as soon as I got matched and got in there, it totally changed my thinking from how little help can I get away with to how do I maximally use this, this incredible new resource that I have? What else can I do or give them or delegate that really like, totally changed the frame for me. And I, and I think I, I'm sure it is a simpler and better business to run, but is also like a much stronger service from my point of view as a client because of that decision. It's funny because it's such a hard line in the sand to draw a lot of people. It's funny. It's, it's even our client base as, as you might be able to tell, because it's, it's still an expensive service, right? Is the relatively wealthy people potentially that are further along in their careers. There's also a lot of founders in the technology space. And yet still, there's a lot of tentative, there's still a a real tentative nature around getting an executive assistant. There's a lot of people that are bashful about it. There are a lot of people that are, you know, wonder, maybe it's, maybe I, I don't, maybe it's not necessarily do I deserve this, but like, I don't necessarily need this because, you know, I can do some of this stuff myself. And it's interesting, you see all these different types of profiles of clients that are really, really tentative, just like you you yourself were, Eric. And one of the things that, you know, I I like to tease some of our clients about it because, you know, they say they don't have enough stuff to do. I'm just like, that's just, it just can't be true. Either that or like, I don't know, I, you know, I don't know what kind of startup you're running, but (laughs) it's definitely not like the one I was running. If you don't have enough stuff to, you know, to give to your, your, come on, Chris, you have a word. I do. I call them, I call them junior varsity. (laughs) I've called it to a couple of them to their faces too. It's, it's, uh, (laughs) it's like a mental block where I'm like, I'm so busy. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have enough work to give a give an EA. It's I don't bit, know how I would use this new resource, which is like that is a mental block that people need to get pushed over. It's a big mental block, and it, it is funny when I when I do you know I say that, <laughs> that's junior varsity, buddy. You know, and it's it's <laughs> it's good to to challenge those guys because they it, it's interesting actually because they they'll take a moment and they'll say I, I guess you're right, right? I do have tons of stuff to do, and there's actually also with clients while we're talking about the psychology of their different profiles. We do find, and we do find that women have a, a much harder time thinking that they deserve an executive assistant, which is which is also really really interesting. A lot of them think, "Hey, I, I don't really need it," or, you know, "I can do that myself." And there's a different type of coaching that goes in around that when you're because a lot of what we're doing in onboarding is we're priming people for a behavior change, right? And I think we have so we've come so far, but we have so far to come in onboarding and getting people ready for this relationship because. A relationship with your executive assistant is it's the most personal professional relationship you'll ever have. I think if you were to interview a bunch of like old dudes or, uh, 
you know, like really uh, seasoned executives will call, well, instead of old dudes, we'll say seasoned executives, <laughs> you know, that have these long-term relationships with their executive assistants, you know, a, a lot of them, their, their closest relationships from a personal level will be with their spouses, you know, whether it's their wife or their husband or, and with their executive assistants. Right. And a lot of what you do or a lot of what your executive assistant takes from you as well is a lot of the daily administration of your life. And a lot of the daily administration of your life is the daily rhythm of your life, right? If you ask a lot of people, how do you start your day? You know, they get up, they have a shower, they have a coffee, maybe they exercise, they sit down and they check their email. But if you have a really strong executive assistant, you're not checking your email anymore, right? You might not necessarily be booking, you might, you lose a lot of agency in booking your calendar and you lose a lot of agency in how you respond to certain things and what you, what you see. And it's so interesting to prime people for that change because it is very disconcerting for a lot of people. I see Robert smirking. So, oh, well, it just, it, it just occurred to me, Chris, you remember a few years ago, you know, Steve jobs and these guys were all like wearing the same clothes every day because they wanted to make less decisions every single day. Right. So it got to that point where it's like the same outfit. That is an acceptable practice. Right. But an EA is still such a big barrier. Right. Like it, it's really interesting, like that that was a more acceptable change to literally wear the same thing every day on repeat. Right. Than to actually get help from somebody. Right. But I, I, I think it does come back to if you don't think that the person receiving the task actually wants it, then then you automatically hesitate to deliver in the first place. Right. Like you seem, you know, like that asshole boss or something fr from a TV show. But when you start to realize that their life gets so much better, they gain experience, they're learning new things, it's changing the way they think about the world, it's helping their economic circumstance, right? Like, I mean, I think there's just a superpower there because it's a, it's a, a two-way thing. And, you know, I, I'll say just over my career, I've had a chance to work with a lot of people where, you know, they do amazing work and then they're, the economic benefits that come from some of these relationships. I mean, Chris, you have probably the most stories there, but I, those always really shine to me that when, you know, they, they get tipped in crypto or, you know, like they do such an amazing job with, to help with an investment. I mean, like, you know, that they get a piece, right? I mean, it, we have so many of those really cool stories that I think fly in the face of that kind of initial hesitation which makes it, I think, for me and you especially, so surreal to imagine people still hesitating to take that first jump, right? Yeah, give it's, us some stories, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you some specifics. I, I, I suppose I, I think that I have seen, and I, I remember, right, I've been here for about eight months, so still getting my feet wet to, to a large extent. And you've, I, I have seen some of our executive assistants' lives entirely change. The lives for themselves and for their families entirely change because they have had the opportunity to essentially become the right-hand person, right? The right-hand person to some of the most up-and-coming, essentially leaders of of the the world, right? I mean, I, maybe that's a little bit of a dramatization, but it's it's not it's not really right. Our client base is is quite affluent. Our client base is quite powerful. And there are people that are building the next unicorns, you know, tons. Of, we have plenty of, of, of clients that are, are, are at these unicorns. We have plenty of clients that are, you know, essentially building the technology of tomorrow or, you know, running industries that affect our, our everyday lives. And our executive assistants, 
they get to be that person's right hand person. Right. And, and, and really, I mean, literally in the eight months that I've been here, I've seen on multiple occasions, lives being completely changed from an economic standpoint, um, because of something that the, the, you know, the client has provided to that executive assistant, whether it be direct compensation or equity or some opportunity to come lead a team. And it has been, it's honestly like every time I hear about it, 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 it makes me want to work harder here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like, it feels like every month now where any, uh, a client is asking for their EA to be flown to another country, uh, Mexico or the U S or go to a board meeting here, right. Or join the team, get together, right. Uh, in this place, or, you know, that EA, you know, starts to get involved with some of the advanced executive level hiring, right. It, it's, it's pretty amazing stuff, but I, I'll say the one that kind of surprised me the most, one, one of the A's I, I meet with them every week and she was telling me that one of her primary responsibilities, believe it or not, is to maintain a family slack room where she helps the family stay bonded over distances by like getting them to ask about their day or like, you know, booking next dinners, right? Like she, she'll, she'll do things like there's quest family questions of the day that everybody has to answer. Right. So the EA is actually like a center point in that family to kind of keep them bonded. Right. And actually feels like they are part of the family because they're such a central component. Right. And it's just things that you just wouldn't, you're so surprised, right. That, that those type of relationships are in place. And then it makes you reflect on your own family relationships, right. And go, wait a minute, you know, if I'm growing away from my mom or dad, because they live on the other coast, right. Or something like that, would a practice like that kind of help us stay, stay tighter and, and more bonded as a family. Right. So, and that, that's why going back to the junior varsity comment, it, it gets, when you hear that, like, oh, I don't have enough to delegate, or you hear things like, you know, I just do the Amazon myself, right? You start to go like, you know, it, okay, but what opportunity is being left on the table? Either opportunity to expand your, your output, right? To be able to do more, to achieve more, to hit your goals faster, right? Or the ability to achieve the same, and relax way more, have way more time to yourself, right? Spend more time on the beach, right? Like, you know, so, and different people have different ambitions, but those are probably the two most common, right? Which is I want to achieve the same, but hang out and relax and enjoy my life. Or I want to superpower myself and 10x my output. So I've got three jobs and, you know, I hit my bucket list before the age of 45. This is why this is the right podcast, because that is literally an entire commercial for thinking and leverage without using the word like, but Athena has, <laughs> Athena has like leverage in your tagline, or at least you used to like the homepage was like giving leverage to the world or like, what is your, what is like either your personal or kind of like the organization's take on that? I mean, do you talk about that openly? Do you like think about it intentionally? Yeah, we, we've thrown this back and forth and we're, we're a startup company and, and we, we're, we're, the nomenclature is always so tough, right? We're trying to embody this feeling, right? Of, that we're trying to achieve, right? And so right now we're really focused on, on basically time. Like time is the one resource that is not scalable right? Time is the resource that you have a very finite supply of and that every moment of every day that you spend, right? That's a decision that you are making that you cannot take back and that you, you can't exchange, right? And so, you know, for us, if you spend even 15 minutes a day for your entire life on just purchasing Amazon products, 
that that's a pretty bad decision when it comes to your overall yeah, what's um, your hourly your rate time. yeah exactly yeah. right and then but here's the here's the interesting part that i think a lot of people need to think about and i think chris really uh, hits on this well is if it takes you two hours to delegate that task right but it's gone forever right then you got to start measuring that but what usually happens is people do it for an hour the ea fails or the process fails for some reason and i'll, I'll just do it so they spend the hour and then they go right back to doing the 15 minutes immediately after instead of finishing that two-hour investment to get it trained properly and communicated properly and delegated forever and so it's that first two-hour component when it comes to leverage that i think is is probably the biggest challenge that our business faces, but that really any executive faces. I think Robert hit on it. Um, there's actually kind of three three points I just want to hit on to to to, to give you that piece hit on, on those points, Chris. Hit on yeah that that piece on leverage that you're looking for for the pod. Um, but but really, I mean, one one of the coolest things for me. So I've been working with Sam for eight months. Sam is your EA. Sam is my EA. She's wonderful. And one of the really cool things that she's been great at and that I love is that it's really since for the last seven months or so, so about one month in, what I did is I essentially put together a list of all the important people in my life, gave her access to my Facebook and Instagram and kind of went through and just, you know, categorized the people that I might want to send gifts to for certain, you know, events and all that kind of stuff. And it is so cool because it's gotten to the the point where there's like essentially some like things that, you know, uh, there's like a baby book that I really like to send to people that have, that have just started having a kid or something like, you know, for, for weddings or something for birthdays. And I, I, you know, you kind of go and classify who's acceptable to get to what. And it is so cool because now people think that I'm more thoughtful than I am, <laughs> you know, <laughs> honestly. Right. Like, it's like, I got this note from a buddy the other day being like, oh my God, this book is so cool. Like, I, I really appreciate it. Like me and, you know, his name is Kevin, me and Yana love it. Thank you so much. And funny enough, and like, this is going to sound terrible, but like, I actually didn't know that he had had a kid, but I had sent him a gift. Right. And now I have this superpower, which is crazy. And, and, you know, I, I text him and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And, you know, we caught up and all that kind of stuff. But so Sam is, is taking care of that and making, that is like, that's the definition of leverage, right? Like I, I am potentially be, and you know, some people might say that's you're cheating. Doing things and you're you really didn't even know you were doing. Correct. Yeah. Which is, which is really, really like, that's part of the SOP, right? Mm -hmm. The other part that I wanted to, to, to circle back on, because Robert's family story really resonated with me, because one of the coolest stories that I heard um, was from a client who, you know, we won't talk about what the client's name is, but he, he came to me and, and this was back actually back when I had pretty much first started because I was running his, his kickoff call and his discovery call. And, you know, I was kicking him off with an executive assistant. And one of the things that he had said in his goals was, I want to spend more time with my, with my wife and my two daughters. I'm just not, I'm, I'm putting all my time and energy into this startup. It's going great. But, you know, I do feel really guilty that I'm not spending enough time with them. And I, I feel like a lot of regret that I'm missing some other stuff. And so they were like, perfect. The EA said, okay, I'm going to make sure some of this stuff gets booked in. And, and, and really actually what, what ended up happening is we come back about a month later and he, I wasn't in this particular call, but he messaged me and he said, you know, I just got called out by my EA. My EA told me I was being a dick. <laughs> and I said, what? And, and, uh, so he tells me the story and he goes, yeah, he, he, sh you know, 
over the course of the first month, I had got a, she had booked a bunch of stuff for me with my wife and kids and I had, you know, canceled some of the things and I had to literally, it was like the uh, prototypical story. Like he had missed the, the soccer game literally of like two of the, his two daughters who are on the same team. Um, they're playing a soccer thing and he said he was going to go and he, he didn't. And his EA called him out. And I loved that story so much. And he said, yeah, you said, stop being a dick and like pay attention to your family, like get your priorities in order. And one of the things that, and one of the things that is you have to remember, right, is that the executive assistant and client relationship is super, super tough for the EA because there's a huge socioeconomic difference. There's a huge seniority difference. There's like big gaps, right, in terms of the level of sophistication that the client may have versus what the EA may have. Because an EA, no matter how wonderful they are, no matter how well we, you know, source and train and all that kind of stuff, they're still junior resources, right? Which is part of the, it's it's part of the battle and part of, part of why onboarding can be really challenging, right? Because you're taking this junior resource and you're putting them into a different world and they're trying to emulate the person and they're trying to be responsible for them and be this, you know, bastion of, of, of hope, essentially. And trying this, to represent them in a culture that they don't totally understand. Like that's a really hard challenge. A hundred percent. And so when I heard that this EA was holding him accountable to his actions, I was like blown away. And I was so happy because one of the things, and now like we're getting in, again, I'm getting into my eighth month with Sam here. Sam holds me accountable to stuff and like scolds me for doing stuff, you know, that I'm not supposed to do, or, you know, holds me accountable to, and, and when you have an accountability partner that knows and understands your context, and when your EA can be your accountability partner, that is extremely powerful and something that we're trying to drive towards as well. So having someone hold you accountable to your own progress, both personally and professionally, that's a superpower in and of itself, right? Yeah, I, I have that relationship with Ivan in, even in very subtle ways. I mean, he just says, hey, you said you wanted to write a blog post every week. Do you have a blog post ready this week? And it's, it's like the politest reminder that I'm not living up to my past self's expectations ever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, all right, all right, all right. Here I go, here I go. Thank you. Thank you for the reminder. But yeah, yeah. I feel like we could do, I could spend hours digging through your guys' brain and experience for this. And I kind of want to, because I feel like that will just be an entire amazing podcast unto itself. I have an inexhaustible appetite for out-of-the-box tasks and and just like great stories of delegation, like whether it's really impressive or really small or like this accountability story is amazing. This family group chat is amazing. Like some of these advanced delegation like tactics, I guess, that you you guys talk about and I mean, to me, one of the most compelling things about Athena is the the community of EAs and the playbooks that get generated and the techniques and everything that you, they are either learning independently and then sharing or that you are like training them even before we get matched, like tools and playbooks and techniques. All of that is so exciting. And every like kind of little case study that I hear is, is like just more brain candy for me. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll kick it off and I'll, I'll throw it over to, to Chris for the, for the learning little bit more um, in, in the weeds than me. But from a recruiting process, you know, we, we look for the factors that best match what we expect our, our, our executives to expect, right? So we're trying, to, we're trying to understand our demographic, which is why we're pretty tight, right? So, you know, we already mentioned right off the bat that we are looking at our executives and going, hey, this is the type of people that we're going to be working with, you know, early stage tech founders, like, you know, early stage executives, right? people who are founding new companies, right? Like that's really who we who we focus on. And we try and understand the challenges and the needs of those people in particular, right? 
And so it goes all the way back to the recruitment process. So we're doing social media screens. We're doing playbook tests. So we take mock examples that we've pulled from, from many executives to say, hey, these are the type of things you're going to be doing. We've put them through that screening process with high, high rigor very, very early in the process. You know, all kinds of financial background checks. You know, we basically run the entire gamut of, of checks in the Philippines that are available to us. And then we use a very, very discer- discerning process to, to get that eliminated. So our, our credibility uh, in the Philippines has grown exponentially. We're attracting about 3,000 applications per week right now. That is um, insane. For, yeah, how many, for how many openings? Well, we, ha- we just have the one post, right? We do about 50 or so matches that, that we are trying to maintain too. We're, we're actually trying to keep it low, believe it or not. Our growth is, is too crazy. But yeah, 50 is the, is the target that we had set, even though we've exceeded that quite a bit. And yeah, we get, we get about 3,000 per week. So we go through that whole list of folks. There's a big automated upfront process. And then we convert it into a manual process towards the end. Uh, where we do in-person or sorry, over video call, but with, with a person to, you know, make sure all the, everything matches. Right. And then once we even get to that process, then on top of that, we allow the executive to choose the person as well, based on a video presentation of that person. So we, we coach and guide them. Hey, this is the job. This is the way it works. This is the way it looks. Talk about yourself. Talk about your feel, who you are, what, how you work with your community, what your life situation is. Right. And then we put those videos in front of, of the folks at the front of the waitlist to say, hey, here are the folks that we've screened. We've already gone through 3,000 applications or so to get to this person, right? We think that they're an, an absolutely great match. Do you feel? And then the client at that point makes the decision. Now there's a bonded start. I chose them. You know, there's that match that gets made. There's a commitment and trust that can get built. And so that process then shuttles off, you know, and then we have onboarding and all sorts of other processes that, that Chris can illuminate on. But right, right before we get to that process, like that matching process, Chris dives in on like a hundred, ton of different training modules, which uh, I'm sure you can highlight at least one or two. Well, and, and it's interesting to hear that because my perspective from the client side is that like my hand was held for maybe a month, at least a couple of weeks on the way towards that. That's kind of like, hey, in order to effectively work with your EA, here's what your expectations need to be. Here are the tools that you need to have in place. Here are the mindset shifts that maybe you need to think about. Here's how much time it's going to take in the first weeks to onboard. Like I had never worked with an EA before when I joined Athena and I was like, there's a high chance that I just suck at this for a meaningful period of time. And I don't know how to get better at it without spending way more time than I like. I need a coach and like that was the that was the experience for me. It was like a scaled version of like, hey, we're gonna like coach you through and just kind of like fail proof this new adventure for you as like mm-hmm. a client coming in while you're kind of like upskilling and filtering on the on the EA side. Yeah, that that's that's where we want to specialize too, right? Because you know, Chris was talking about it uh, the other day when we were we we're diving in a bit that folks who have had EAs before successfully are really not the the best demographic for us like that that's not um necessarily what we're we're trying to go after what we're trying to go after is really those executives who are starting they could have failed a number of times before we find great success in those situations because they try the cheaper services or the the per piece services and it doesn't work out that was my story a lot of folks like that yeah and then then we can guide from there right so that that's that's kind of the niche that that we target that's where we think we offer the most value and that's what we want to continue to to focus on as time progresses. 
yeah, Chris, you want to talk about some of the the kind of last mile like tool and playbook training that they go through? So if you, and, and Robert actually brought up a good point to frame this, right? Our competitors for the most part, or the other people in market where, you, you know, Robert said, you send a task across the world and it comes back complete, right? I think a huge portion of, you know, different companies that are trying to solve this problem, they're trying to do as much as possible to take the human element out of it as much as possible, right? They're trying to mechanical Turk everything and they're trying to maybe pool a bunch of tasks together from a whole bunch of different people and then get them done on a, you know, a very transactional basis. And so for us to differentiate and for us to to live the mission essentially that we're trying to achieve, which is, you know, provide incredible career opportunity on one side, provide incredible leverage on the other side and put those two things together. We focus a lot more on actually our perspective on the way that certain things should be done. And so all of our training modules start with a perspective. And so I'll, I'll, you know, conceptualize that with an example. And one of those examples is, you know, what is our perspective on calendar management, right? Calendar management, we have certain perspective on how executives or how someone that's really busy should manage their time, right? And a lot of it is around how does an executive's energy levels wane, wane, like, you know, there's a sine wave of your energy levels throughout the day. And so our perspective piece on calendar management is, you know, understanding with your principal, right? Your principal is the client to the, on the executive side, right? The executive assistant, we ask them, make sure you understand with your principal, the energy levels of your client. Like, are they an early, early morning person? Are they a late night person? Are they someone that thrives with asynchronicity, right? Are they, do they need to be synchronous, right? I, for, uh, I, for, uh, as an example, I'm trying to do things a little bit more asynchronous just to play around with it. Whereas like Jonathan loves like leaving me voice notes and, and leaving me loom videos and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like really trying to get to a, a, a good sense of it and really trying to figure out a way to integrate that a little bit more into my life. There's some people that or some executives, for instance, that love having an opportunity to compose themselves before a meeting. Right. So it's like, don't, don't, don't book your principal in back-to-back meetings if they like to have a moment to catch their breath and like they hate being late for things and make sure that they've got their energy level still up. Whereas other people love being back-to-back and they're like, I'm such a waste of time to like be in, in a meeting and then 15 minutes and then in another meeting and then 15 minutes, then in another meeting, because they feel like there is this huge switching cost that they don't want to be in, right? They want to have a chunk of meetings all back to back so they don't, they don't have that context switching cost. And, and, and on that note, like context switching is extremely painful, right? Context switching is extremely painful for everyone. And so in there, in our perspective, right, it's like try to organize your, your, you know, your client's calendar in a way where they're doing as little context switching as possible. Now, what does that mean? Because that's, you know, a foreign term to a lot of people, right? It's make sure that, you know, like things are grouped so that there's less context switching. Make sure that, you know, if you have a meeting with someone that is, you know, directly relevant to someone else on your team, for instance, that, 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 you know, that comes, you know, and, and so what we're essentially trying to do is we're trying to get our executive assistants trained up in a way that the thought process behind actual calendar management comes from an actual perspective or a point of view, as opposed to just, this is how you use Google calendar, make sure that, you know, you know, and so that's that's like the basis of a lot of our playbooks is that we have a white paper and a white paper just means a perspective piece essentially so we write our athena perspective on how something should be done and then there's two components to it an instructional module that goes into our learning management system and eas go through essentially like an academy we call it the athena academy 
and watch those videos and, you know, learn and do quizzes and all that kind of stuff to figure out, did I understand, did I um, actually like capture this material? And then we have playbooks and the playbooks are very much in their fledgling state. And we're experimenting actually in beta with a lot of people around how do you actually customize these playbooks to make them like, instead of just Athena's version of the playbook, you know, it's Eric's version of the playbook. And one of the really exciting things around this is this concept of everyone in the world should have a user manual for themselves, right? And so we're, that's like a really what we're building right now. And it's it's very fledgling. And if uh, there are other, Athena, I'm sure I'm going to get, I'm going to die for this because Athena clients are going to be like, I heard you on Eric's podcast and I want to know about the, my, my user manual, um, but we're building it and it's going to be epic and it's going to be incredible. And it's this concept of, yeah, everyone has a user guide and other people can learn how to work with you. And it sounds like a little bit egocentric, but like you can be the center of your own universe and you can, you can, you know, teach people how to work with you and how to work around you and how to help you live the life that you want to live. And that's, that's your prerogative. Right. And so that's, uh, that's what the client playbooks are, are becoming. And it's very exciting. <laughs> it's, it is all, I mean, I sat in on some of those training sessions when I was over there and it, it seriously looks like probably the training that you went through when you were new at Deloitte, it's like, here's how you pull in data, analyze, like construct an actual graph. Here's how you communicate a proposed decision with data at the back. Like it is, it's an amazing education, like upskilling all these EAs and showing them in context how to make decisions on behalf of their client, or at least propose them is, is incredible. Can you, can you tell us what some of the playbooks are? Cause I feel like that's, that is exciting. When I hear, like, we talked about a fair bit about, like, how each of you used your assistant to, like, you know, what systems you've come up with. And then we kind of, like, share these playbooks. And it's like, oh, no, I, like, Chris has this, like, recipe kitchen grocery thing figured out. I want I want to have that figured out. Like, show, show me how you solved it. Like, let me let me have that playbook. Yeah. So I'll give you the structure. And the structure is kind of a, a life map type of structure that we're going through right now. And if you think about your life in, in different pillars of your life, right? I think almost everyone would agree with you that health is one of the pillars of your life, right? And you can break down health into, you know, exercise, diet, and sleep. And so we're building out playbooks around, you know, for an instance, diet is one, right? It's, hey, I'm your, your principal or your client wants to cook more at home. That's a really common one that we get, right? Why, like, why do you want to cook more at home? Well, because there's so many amazing reasons to cook more at home. You can eat healthier, you can spend more time with your significant other or with your family. And it's, you know, another tool in your arsenal of living a beautiful life, honestly, right? If you can, if you can nourish yourself and nourish your, that your loved ones. And so of course it's a common request, right? But what, what are the hard things about cooking for yourself? If you're running a fledgling company or you're, a, you know, let's be honest, like if you're a high powered executive of some sort that has an executive assistant, you're probably really busy. And so you probably often, you know, order out or eat out substantially more than you would otherwise want to. And so one of the things that an executive assistant can help you with, and this is one of the instructional modules that we're going through and we're teaching um, our executive assistants about is how do you take as much of the cognitive load of cooking at home away from your principal? The cognitive load, a lot of that cognitive load is you have to decide what you're going to eat. You have to decide on what that recipe is. You have to make sure that those ingredients are fresh and at your house. And you have to make sure that you have the time 
and are with the right people and have the right amount of stuff. And, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of cognitive load that goes into planning that, again, it, I talked about it earlier, that daily administration of your life or that weekly administration of your life that falls into it is cooking that meal. And so one of the instructional modules that we're building out and it's getting more and more advanced because it, you know, it's so contextual is this idea of right now we're getting to a pretty, Mel, Melissa is my, my wonderful wife. And, and shout she out and I, to Mel, shout out to Mel. She and I are, are getting to this, this awesome place with our, our executive assistants where Mel will kind of decide on a couple of things Say, Hey, we're going to cook four times this week. Um, here are the four things we're going to cook, send them off to uh, Tazan, who is her executive assistant. And then all of the, everything that we need and the, with the right amounts of what we need arrives at our doorstep. Now, the first couple of times we tried this obviously it was super painful because some of the, you know, like it was not the right brands or not the right amount of stuff or you know, bottles of red wine vinegar. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and it, well, this is the thing, right? Like there's, again, there's cultural differences, there's contextual differences. So the first, literally the first couple of times we tried this, like it didn't work out very well, but we just stuck at it and stuck at it and stuck at it. And now, you know, it's freaking amazing. It's actually yeah, it's amazing. Like that, it's like that second hour that Robert talked about. Like if you, if your expectations are set that this is only going to take 15 minutes to delegate. It, it's a world of hurt. And you'll never get it done. It's, it's funny you say that too, Chris, because I have, uh, my wife has a big case of baby wipes <laughs> in the garage because <laughs> we were doing the same thing with like, with diapers and like a lot of the repetitive tasks, right? So one day we just got this huge <laughs> case of baby wipes. We're, we're set for life. So, but that's the, the small price to pay for not having to ever think about that ever again. Right. You truly, you yes. have to make different trade-offs. Like I find myself doing, I'm like, oh, this is so waste. And then I'm like, we got an extra head of lettuce. What is that? $3? We'll give it to our neighbor. Like this was absolutely yeah. within the like, acceptable margin of error of like, it's not like this was a failed experiment by any means. Yeah. You gotta, you can't, you can't be afraid to fail, right? You gotta, you gotta own it, right? What are the single, like most exciting or most biggest moments of relief or whatever, like of single things that you guys have used your, your EAs for. I know for me, like there's definitely bigger projects that Ivan has done, but like anytime I can have him call customer service on my behalf, it, there is no greater joy in my life than I hate phone trees more than anything else in the world. And like Ivan, before he worked with me, he worked in an AT&T call center. He was like a call trainer. And so like knowing that I'm like sending like a, a, a trained assassin into the call center ecosystem that he knows how to work the system and can like get that stuff done for me is just yeah. gives me such elation. Is there anything else that like you guys do that makes you that happy? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll use two examples. One that seems small, but I, I think it really does matter in the grand scheme of things. It's it's stuff that you don't ask for that you don't expect that happens like and surprises you, right? So like once you have this EA relationship built, there's that tough period, then you get a bond built, then the things that you ask for are getting done. But then after you've, you have this EA relationship for a long period of time, then stuff starts to happen that you didn't even ask for that you love, Right. So a good, good point was when I was over in the Philippines, I was traveling through the Philippines for work. And then I was going back to Thailand to meet my family. And I had a stop over at the hotel and I had like maybe four or five hours booked a massage for me happened. Didn't even think about it. Just proactive. Yeah. You had long travel. You were on a long flight. You know, it would have been great to relax. And I was just that kind of like somebody like doing that for you. Just, it makes a world of difference when you're in those kind of spots, right? After a long day of travel. The other one was save my other company. So I have a construction company that I founded with a friend of mine here, here on the island. 
And what we found out was we found out that there was government has to post for projects, right? And so there's a lot of these websites, the, you know, particularly for the provincial government here in Canada. And so we would basically bid and all this. And so our EA just started bidding on pretty much every project possible that we could find using a set criteria that we had kind of built out, right? And when you can have that kind of like machine going, right, which here in Canada, it'd be so difficult to have that kind of a machine built, right? But when you've got remote support, right, you have that machine built, you can put lots of these bids in using data that's readily available, and you can just keep going. We've had like quarter million dollar contract wins just because of that process. And so from a cash flow, cash flow perspective for the business, even if sometimes the profitability might be off by a little bit, right? You just, you keep rolling, right? You keep moving into more and more projects, building credibility, right? And so it's things like that, that I never would have expected that uh, really, you know, turned into an absolutely huge win, just because you start to open yourself up to the possibilities of these other techniques as well, right? So. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I didn't expect, right? Because this is not tactical. This is literally just, this is just peace of mind, I suppose. But before I had my executive assistant, what sometimes it's scary to sit down and do work for, you know, if you get into like a really amazing flow and you get into that flow state and like, it's so amazing because you feel so productive and you're like, fuck, I put in a good day's work and like, I'm going to sleep like a baby. Right. And you can like actually sit there and like work for like 10 hours in a row. And, you know, for me, sometimes like if I get into a real flow state, you can go for like 16 hours in a row and like, it's like kind of weird and not everyone will do that. And, but I'm sure everyone has experienced that flow state before. Right. And especially if you're a high performer, you've probably experienced that flow state before having an executive assistant has given me way more of that flow state, not because of anything she's actually done or how strong she is necessarily, but because I know that someone's watching my email and I know that someone has got my back on emergencies. So I don't feel like I need to go and check and interrupt that flow state. And so that is like an, like a huge under, we don't even really talk about that with anyone. And maybe we should actually, maybe that's my fault. Maybe I should be telling more people about that because it's actually this like incredible feeling that someone has your back, that someone's watching out for things that might come in that that they can take care of because almost, you know, almost nothing is like you, you need to be reachable at all times, right? And maybe you can put on your emergency ringer or whatever it may be, but it's really to me, uh, just a special part of having an executive assistant or having someone that you can trust watching, watching out for you is, is getting into those flow states. When you, when you talk to somebody who's a prospective client, how does someone know when they need an EA, when they're like ready for that in their career or what the, like, uh, how, how to kind of look at the opportunity cost of, cause I, I think the all in the cost of this is lower than people think or, or would imagine. I mean, certainly it's not the equivalent of like, of, of effort or cost of doing this in the U S where you're like, Oh, I have to take on like a $50,000 a year expense. Plus I have to figure out the overhead and how to manage payroll and like, wait, do I owe this person benefits? Like all of the overhead around that. So, so what is kind of the tipping point of like, this is a no brainer if, you know, these either life circumstances or professional circumstances or, you know, hourly rates, however you want to kind of classify it. Yeah. I, not I'm financial gonna... advice. <laughs> no, is it not, not financial advice at all, but I will have a, I'll have an answer that is going to maybe sound a little bit snarky, but is, is really, is really like what I actually believe. And that is once you reach a level of comfort with yourself, 
around how you want things done and how you're going to do things, you're ready for an executive assistant. If 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 you if you can economic if you can economically if it economically makes sense in terms of you know outsourcing some part of of your own responsibilities, the th- the the place where we see the people not have success is if they can't articulate what they want or they can't articulate how they feel about things. And that's why we see the people that are most ready to have an executive assistant are system thinkers of some sort, right? They have a system or they have an SOP, a standard operating procedure for how they believe that things are going to get done. There are other, there are two other things that are essential. One is that the person needs to have an understanding of their locus of control. And when I say locus of control, what I mean is like how comfortable people are giving up a little bit of agency and then also how comfortable are people with something that is not 100% the way that they themselves would do it. And so it's kind of like a perfectionist score of some sort because we do see some clients come in and dramatically fail with us, right? I'm not going to pretend that we're perfect. We see some clients come in and dramatically fail with us because they either can't give up the agency uh, that they need to, to effectively work with an executive assistant, or they're not comfortable with any type of quality drop off in something that gets done. And the way that I'll describe that is that imagine it was me and you, Eric, imagine I was your executive assistant, right? Imagine I was your chief of staff and I was the chief of staff, even if you're telling me, and we, we share a lot of context, right? We're both entrepreneurial, you know, relatively, you know, relatively young men in the, the context of everything, you know, we, we share a ton of context. I probably know how you like certain things. You know, we're not like super close friends or anything like that, but I probably have a really good sense of how you like things and what you would want done. And even if you tell me to do something, I'm not going to do it 100% the way that you would want to do it. I'm not going to understand 100% of your full intention, right? And you're going to have less agency than if you did it yourself, right? And now take that with an executive assistant. Then again, there's a socioeconomic divide. There's a international divide. There's a oftentimes, sometimes a gender divide as well. Cultural, contextual. Yeah, correct. And so what, when a person is ready to have an executive assistant, they have to be at a certain level of comfort with themselves. They have to have a certain level of sophistication in the way that they're thinking, and they have to be able to understand at least where they're going to struggle, giving up some control, giving up some agency, because, you know, the trade-off, the implicit trade-off that you make with delegation is, you might not get 100% of exactly what you meant across, and you might not get 100% control of what you're doing, but you get every second of the time back, right? Yeah. And if you have, I remember kind of doing the napkin math of like, here's what I kind of think my time is worth, like professionally, here's what I kind of think my time, my like leisure time is worth personally. And it's something we talk about in the course all the time. And then I kind of did the math on like, it, even if I'm only, even if Athena is ours, are half as effective this is like this is a 10x like roi instantly and i'm sure it's going to be better than that but like the margin of error of of like getting a positive outcome of this if if you are in the you know like i've seen somebody else drop a rule of like which is a nice clean rule and i don't know if it's quite true i think there's more lifestyle to it than that but you know if you you make more than a hundred thousand dollars a year you should have an ea or like, if you have more than two kids, you should have an EA. Or like, if both husband and spouse work, you should have an EA. Like, I, I, I'm sure it's not quite as easy to cut and dry like that. But from, from my perspective, this is how I think about it. Maybe, maybe this is wrong, but this this is the way I, I I thought about it from when I first did it to as I continue to do it. Are you ready to found the corporation of you? 
right? Are you, are you entrepreneurial enough to found the corporation of you? And do you believe in yourself enough that you know that your output is going to gain, right? And so like delegation is an interesting word because it usually has a negative connotation. People think of like, you know, uh, these shows with, you know, the secretaries and the, the old school style, right? But really what you're doing is you're hiring an employee into the corporation of you, right? And so, you know, I, I see so much opportunity for consulting work, so much opportunity to get on boards, so much opportunity, you know, to share what your true expertise is about, right? That you waste time on buying Amazon, doing calendars, like doing very ineffectual work. Like if you were looking at your, your, yourself as a corporation, as a business, that would be a terrible decision to diversify into a completely different stream that makes no sense and that you don't have the skill in. So I, I always, you know, I would ask the question to the client, you know, are you ready to invest in the corporation of you? Is that a bet you're willing to make? Is that an investment that's going to have an ROI? And if you can answer that question, then I think the interesting thing that comes next is the same people who, if they are willing to make that investment, they need to understand that this is an employee that they're bringing on. And that means they need to be humble, listen to them, coach them, develop them, do all the things that a good boss would do with an employee as well. And then tremendous benefits are going to come from it. You look at these entrepreneurs that are founding huge companies with 50,000 employees. Nobody questions that those companies need to have a ton of employees in order to gain leverage. But for some reason, when it becomes a personal thing, all of a sudden, the context of the conversation changes a lot, right? So I think if you frame it that way, I think it starts to make mean like, hey, wait a minute, I just need to treat me like I'm a company, right? Yeah. And I love the way that's articulated because you start to feel when you feel constrained, when you feel like there's more of you to give than you can afford to, but you can't afford to let anything fall off the plate, mm -hmm. but you don't know what resource to kind of reach for, right? Like that, that classic kind of trap of like, I only think of leverage in one way. I haven't considered, you know, this the, hiring the, I was the, one of the two biggest jumps in the personal leverage that I felt in my whole life. And that sort of, it was one of the things that just clicked into like, oh my God, like, and unlocked this whole new level of compounding, like reinvesting the gains from that step back into more projects and more effectiveness and more impact. So yeah, I think that's very well articulated. Well, and when you see some of these people who are accomplishing the most in the world, right? I mean, pick your person who's got the most leverage, right, in this whole planet. I don't think anybody would argue the fact that they have a massive family office behind them, right? It's not talked about, but they do, right? And every once in a while, a story comes out, but a lot of those folks are under such like extreme NDAs, right, that it, it's clear that the amount of leverage that they get because of those huge family offices they have behind them is, is, you know, exponential. So I, I, it just, it feels to me like if leverage is the goal, right? If output is the goal, then, you know, having the teamwork behind you to achieve those goals is an absolute necessity, right? And fighting it is, is fighting your goals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's something you should be running towards, not, not shying away from as you describe that, I'm picturing like a, a scene of succession where there's like the main characters and then there's just a bunch of people around them with like clipboards that you don't even know their names. It's just like a staple of that. But even, you know, every book you've ever read, like there's one big name on the front. And when you flip to the back, you see 50 names that you contributed to that person's life and this book in particular. And, you know, th there's a lot of leverage and nobody wants to shine a spotlight on how they're accomplishing what they are. But, but this is, I think, one of the open, open secrets to it.
Yeah, they they ask the question all the time, like, how do you do all these different things, right? <laughs> and the answer is never, oh, I have 50 people behind me that do a lot of those things, right? And it's, to that point, I hope, Robert, it's fair to say, like, you have more than one EA. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I have a, I have a team for sure. What is, what is a team? So, how, what does a team look like? How does it work? Well, I have my original EA, and she's been uh, working with me for about seven years now. So she, she's been with me for a long time. And then I have, I have kind of two for time zone coverage that, that sit underneath her. And so they're kind of like uh, my hands-on folks that kind of follow me 24 by 7. We divide some tasks based on expertise or skills, right? So there's certain parts of my life that, that go to one or the other if it's not a time zone sensitive issue. But we have, you know, that team basically focused on like following as, as I spit out tasks from construction company, Athena or, or investments or, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And then the construction company has a number of folks that are, that are inside of it. So there's like a master person for the construction company. Spend some time with me, but more time with the other founder being kind of the, the main liaison uh, for that company. And then, yeah, we do regular cadences of meetings and different communication methods, you know, to kind of go back and forth and communicate on things. So we do use the Athena app as kind of a prime, primary tool for me to delegate. So, you know, if I'm on the fly, we all record something into the app. The app goes to my, chief, my chief of staff, and then she can delegate the task in Asana to different, different folks. I mean, they have access uh, to do it as well, but, but that's her primary job responsibility. And then if I wanted to communicate with them, I generally do that through Signal. In a, in a group chat. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's literally a small business or, or two. Yeah. 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 And it, it's funny because it, it makes money. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's ridiculous. Like, but I, I told the story about the, the winning the bids for the construction company. Right. But yeah, setting up consulting, like getting, you know, getting on the boards of certain companies, right. Advisory roles, right. Like all these things are possible because a lot of the other stuff that, that, you know, I would, before spend a lot of time on I don't have to do that and so I'm much more open to opportunities because you know I'm not wasting and I don't feel so busy that I that I don't, I'm not going to entertain them right so it's just a refocus of you know where I'm actually good versus where I'm not and then on the back end of it I think it's really important what you guys were saying before about the weaknesses right the weaknesses that you have those are probably the areas where you can benefit the most and, and I, I'll give an example because I, I think it helps in the context of these. Like if you're the type of person who like, oh, I'll get to the dentist eventually, you know, like I'll get there, I'll get there, right? But you just kind of keep putting it off and then, you know, it turns into a disaster, right? If you have like an assistant who's like good at that stuff and knows that that's a priority for you, you all that stuff happens and you don't have to worry about it, right? And so what, what's the benefit of like not putting that stuff off, right? Having it, teeth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny, but it's so true. And, and I don't know what it is for every person. I'm sure every person has a thing. Yeah. I, I tease Chris about his haircuts, you know, because... Oh, he gets he, daily he, haircuts. That looks morning. That <laughs> looks like it was shaved this morning. That's fresh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he was he was doing it himself, so I was teasing him about it. But I, you get the point, right? It's like these things that otherwise you wouldn't think about that oftentimes frustrate you that you just dismiss it within a few seconds. When that just gets offloaded, like Chris said, it gives you the peace of mind, but also it protects you against things long term that could hurt you as well, right? So. Yeah. And, and Chris, do you want to give us your version of that? I know you and your wife both have your own EAs, which kind of help you both in work and at home. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it just just like any team, right? Like people fall into their own roles and Sam and is my EA and, and Zan is, is Mel's EA. And 
we do have like these kind of like family office meetings where we talk about what our priorities are, what's going to be important to us coming up, what the next quarter looks like. We talk a little bit about some of the things that need to get coordinated. Actually, something that has been really cool and really exciting for us is that we just uh, tore down a house and and designed it and, and built it up together over the course of the last year. And so the EAs were like pretty intrinsically involved in that. We're doing some landscaping now. So there's literally, I was a little bit worried because we're recording this and I wanted to be professional audio quality, but there are people in the back. As hopefully I'm, I'm secluded enough. There are people in the back just at, essentially like jackhammering the patio and back there. But all, all that to say, yeah, we have the, the, the family office that, that coordinates the, the, again, the daily administration of, of, of your life, making sure that the kind of the bird's eye view of, of what the calendar is going to look like. You know, when are we going to see my family this summer? When are we going to see Mel's family this summer? What are the big things that are coming up? Like when were we traveling and when are we going to be able to see, you know, person X, Y, and Z and, and so just having a team coordinate your life when you get to a certain level of, you know, how busy you're, you're going to be. And again, once you're living a life that's intentional enough that you understand and you can be articulate about what you want to see happen, happen, that's the time when having an executive assistant, is just actually gives you real leverage, right? They, they're, they're able to help coordinate the life that Mel and I are trying to build for ourselves, which is, again, that's the superpower. I love that. I, I think we we started this, we did the first half of this answer, but not the second half, but but that's okay. We can pick up where Athena is today now after after a year of, of Robert's hard work and a, a good portion of, of Chris's. And then I'd love to see a little bit of like what, what you see this going over the next 10 years, like where where you, what the idealized vision of, of Athena can be in the 2030s. Yeah, where we're at today, we've got, around 500 partnerships now. We started a year ago when I came on board, we probably had around 70 and, and many of them were part-time or or kind of mixed relationships at the time. So today it's around 500. It's not a lot of businesses um, that grow 10X in a year. Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, it's been some crazy growth for sure. And, and the demand is there, right? I mean, so that's why we're so lucky is because um, the demand uh, for, for these types of relationships is 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 very much there. And it's whenever we do these podcasts, I, I have a conversation with, with with Chris. I go, Chris, do you, are you sure we should do this? Right? Um, because there's a lot of demand to to get these kind of relationships, and it's it, and they're hard to build, right? They take a lot of focus and a lot of really great people. Yeah, we've been on a hiring spree, bringing on really talented people like Chris and, and many many others. You know, we brought on a new chief marketing officer, a new a chief financial officer. So really trying to formalize the company, build build a lot of really strong practices. And that's what we're in right now. We're in build and invest mode. And where, where do we get to? You know, we had talked in an original forecast that getting to an employee size of 10,000 people was the target for 2030. You know, I, I, I guess I'm not as focused on that as I am creating really high quality relationships. And, you know, I do want to get to a place where I continue to find new opportunities in other economically disenfranchised parts of the world, not just the Philippines. So, you know, I, from a, an objective standpoint, if we can continue to have a high quality relationship between the EAs um, and the clients, we can leverage the playbooks and our applications to kind of help make that communication flow back and forth between the two of them very, very seamless. And at the end of the day, treat our people really great. I, I think I'd be satisfied. And, you know, from a market standpoint, 
it seems like it's we're we're in an opposite situation to a lot of companies where the demand for the product is very very high so we're being very careful um, about how we approach but ultimately if we do get to a place where we find we can supply those high quality relationships with folks and and help people while doing it yeah we'd like to continue to look outside of our current t- target demographic which is simply just early stage uh, founders you know entrepreneurs you know tech business owners yeah, Chris, you want to add anything to that that I missed? Yeah, well, I just I want to jump in with reiteration a little bit of part of the part of why I joined the company, right? Because the vision or the long term vision for me is that Athena at some point in the future can claim and can you know proudly claim and rightfully so claim that we provide you know we source and find and and create these relationships and that we produce the best executive assistants in the world, right? That Athena produces the best executive assistants in the world. And I I think there's no reason that we can't become that company. And I also think that we have this opportunity to do this incredible good because it's like a, it's like controversial to say that some people are, you know, more impactful than others. Right. And, and I know that the, the reality is, is I'll take that stance and we'll just say it is that there are certain people in the world that are going to do a crazy amount that are going to be insanely productive and are going to do a crazy amount of good and are going to march us forward and be insanely productive no matter what they do. And if that is our client base and our sole mission as a company is to take the people that are doing the most in the world already and give them leverage to help them do more and sometimes up to like, you know, 10, 20, 30 times more than they thought that they could do because we teach them how to delegate appropriately. We teach them how to you know, let everything else fall away from them. And we can do that while producing the best executive assistance in the world and giving people exactly like what Robert said from economically disenfranchised places in the world and connecting them to these people and letting them be the right hand person and changing their families' lives and, and their, their entire trajectory in life. That is like, uh, that's the whole reason I joined. That's the whole, it's unbelievably exciting to me. And it is, it's, you have this opportunity to do this incredible good on both sides. And it's, you know, that's where I want, that's what I want us to become. Oh, I love that. That is such, this company's vision and mission, like strikes a chord deep within me on both sides of the vision and everybody that I've met, you know, you guys are generous enough to invite me to like come to the Philippines and hang with you and meet all the EAs and like be kind of a part of the family for a week or so. And, and the hunch that I had that that was true just kind of kept becoming more obvious and more clear like there's no there's magic in leverage and there's magic in elevating people and finding extreme talent especially when they're contextually in a disadvantage and putting those things together and i've seen just alchemy magic happen already even at what is a relatively small scale compared to where i think we will get in the future and I'm just really excited to see what happens as, as you guys keep adding zeros and adding playbooks and finding, you know, new, new countries, new people, new clients and seeing where we go from here. But yeah, like it is, it is almost unbelievable that like you guys independently arrived at such a similar like worldview and set of values and things to be excited about that like I did. And we just kind of like met in the middle and like Spider-Man pointed at each other and we're like, oh my God, this is great. I'm not alone. <laughs> got to put you got to put the meme up now then. Right? Yes, we'll we will end with the meme. And with the meme. yeah, I like just from an economics perspective, 
what is going to happen in like 100 or 200 years? Like, is, is the whole world going to end up getting like totally flattened out? Will these local sort of like disadvantages, like, will that trend just continue over like decades and decades until it's the world is truly flat? And when you say flat, you mean in the way just equal? Like, yeah, I mean, like, are, will every will there be like, will the global average be this pay be the same as the sort of local average pay? Yeah, f- fully loaded question. You know, it, it, it's it's interesting to see kind of what's happening because it feels that way, right? I mean, like the Philippines, when I first got there in 2008, it was just a very different, very, very different world than it is today, right? I mean, it's the amount of change, like entire cities have been raised there kind of in the last five years. Where I used to live basically was non-existent and five years later. And when you kind of go there, you just... You, you kind of get stunned because the skyscrapers are happening and like everything's like really, really popping up. Right. And people say that people say, you know, the Philippines was the early 2000s and then it's going to it's going to move downstream to the you know Vietnam or Africa or wherever. Right. So I, I to some extent, I think it's a beautiful thing because the middle class starts to exist in these countries where it just absolutely didn't. But how far away would that happen? My God, I mean. You know, that's probably a long ways off, right? And, you know, I would imagine technology is probably the great equalizer. And so the faster that technology gains, probably the tighter we get and the more opportunities can be leveraged, right? So that, but that would be, I still think we're a ways off because the, when, the more you travel to countries like those, the more gaps you see it, you know, it's illuminating. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think it's a big, it's, I mean, it's a really big question. I, I think that, one of the things I said earlier on the pod was that you have to believe that everywhere in the world, there's incredible people, you know, to be an Athena client. That's one of the things you'd have to believe. And I, I, I do think that over the course of 100, 200, 300 years and into the future, I'm firmly in the optimist camp. I know that being optimistic can sometimes, you know, paint you as naive, but I would rather be, I, I, I guess I would rather be naive if being a pessimist is the only way to, to, to be seen as worldly enough. I, I do think that, you know, things are getting better all over the world in a variety of ways. And I do think that one of the beautiful things that will start to happen over the course of the next century is that if you have enough talent and you have enough drive, you're going to be able to find your way to a beautiful life. Whereas that might not have been true, you know, over the, over this past century, I think it will be true of the coming century. And so that I think is wonderful. It's interesting too, with technology, because, you know, years ago, people were saying all the jobs would go away because everything would become so easy. Right. And it kind of seems like we've seen the complete opposite, right? We've seen everything become ridiculously complex. Therefore there's way more jobs needed and way more people needed than ever before. I wonder if there's a tipping point you know, at some stage where that kind of reverses, you know, but it doesn't seem like it as of now. At least. No, I mean, that, that, that debate is uh, probably thousands of years old. Like, oh, we invented the plow. What are we going to do all day? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I'm uh, a deep believer that, yeah, not, not only do pessimists not produce, but that continue technology. Technology is, is another um form of leverage that just kind of continues to make everyone's lives better. And the more widely that gets distributed and the more widely opportunity gets distributed and talent gets, you know, I, th- I think leverage somewhat naturally accrues to the high impact sort of individuals that Chris was alluding to. We all mm. choose to work for people that we think can use our talents the best. We invest in the people who we think are going to put that money to use the best and produce the greatest thing. And so like, there's a very natural sort of economy of leverage going on and the more people are connected to it and the more 
fluid and meritocratic that becomes across the whole globe the the trickle down effects and the lifestyle improvements to, to everyone on the planet are are meaningful so I, I i think this is truly like a very meaningful kind of paddle in the water towards that effort actually like there's not a lot of people in the frontiers of places like this with high intention high talent high integrity i mean robert you kind of mentioned at the beginning like there's a lot of there's companies here but it's yeah. not always for the right reasons and not always with the best intent and not always um, at the highest level of, of professionalism. So one thing I'll, I'll jump in on on that is that I've this is really cool. And I actually don't know if Robert knows this, but I do. I, I meet with executive assistants a couple of times a week. So I, I usually try to meet with two new executive assistants a week. And I can't tell you the number of times that I said, you know, how did you hear about Athena? Why did you apply? And they say, oh, I, you know, I heard that it was a Robert Hayes company. So I wanted to apply and I was like, holy shit, this guy is like, <laughs> you know, and I know having worked with Robert for the past eight months that he's an incredible leader, uh, definitely the strongest leader I've ever worked with. And it's just, but to see that like people are applying because they know it's a Robert Hayes company, like that's a, a special feeling as well. Thank you. That's nice to hear. <laughs> Go for that regret, like a, a Athena, a Robert Hayes joint or, or like a <laughs> Hayes EAs. It's very cool. Like, I, it, it's just, you know, I, I think, I think if you believe deep down that both people can win in any engagement, I mean, I think it, it just changes the whole context, right? So I, I said it earlier about the whole 1980s, like philosophy, or, you know, a lot of companies quarter to quarter driving profits, you know, at the expense of everything else. I, you know, I just, I, I continue to refuse to believe that it's not possible to have both parties win, right? And so when you have that kind of a belief, I mean, you know, that's, that's what we did at Task Us for a long time. And, you know, it wasn't just me. Uh, obviously, there was there was a lot of us involved in that, but we were able to to show on a repeated basis that you can take care of your people and still make good money and still produce excellent results. And you know, that's what we want to continue to do, right? And so, yeah, the market is full of, of of different people out there offering you know services, hiring, all that kind of stuff. And you know, at many times, we've actually said to some of our clients, like, "Hey, this is not the option for you," right? Like, we've have told. Chris, many times, like, hey, no, that's not for us. Even though it's very lucrative, it's very profitable. He's he's come to me with some big opportunities where I've said, that's not that's not what we do. That's not our value prop, right? That that's not what we're going to be best at, right? So we're we're really trying to stick to the things that we think we can do amazingly, and that is um, kind of exactly what we've described here today, and and that's that's going to be our absolute focus, right? And you know, they say companies are always defined by what they say no to right? You can have all these fancy core values, all these fancy, you know, websites, you know, all this kind of stuff, but where you actually decide to draw the line. And that's, that's why, you know, with your onboarding too, Eric, like, no, it's a full-time thing, right? There's a training you got to go through, right? There's a selection criteria that we have to go through. You know, we're starting to screen more folks, be but that's not because that we want to exclude folks. It's because we want to make sure that our promise is kept right? That our value proposition is kept. And oftentimes that means, you know, explaining to folks where they're going to get the most benefit and where they're not. And that's why I said a lot of folks, they go try two or three other places and it doesn't work. Those make ideal clients for us because they understand the, the, the reason why, you know, but folks who have had successful relationships in the past, it doesn't necessarily work best with us just because that's not what we specialize in, right? So uh, just in that last 
sort of set of paragraphs. I heard two like very what sound like really strong or or frequently used like heuristics or like mental models or priorities for you. Like you hit both on focus and win-win sort of alignment relationships. And and I wonder like are those uh what what is the full set of sort of the like heuristics that make you you know, you, you've done so much with Athena so quickly, you clearly have an impact, like a reputation from Taskus, you know, Chris, who I respect has a very large sample size and looks up to you as a, as a leader and an operator. Like what are the, the mental tools or priorities or, or things that you use to guide the decisions most often that you feel like sort of attribute you could, you would attribute that to? Yeah, I'd say number one is actions and, and words. And this, the segregation of the two of them, I have a disadvantage, a natural disadvantage, which my natural disadvantage is I'm not a very emotional, like emotionally based person. So I struggle with kind of the, you know, being very emotional. But what it's caused me to do is to be very ob- observational when it comes to people's behaviors and their actions and the words that they speak and trying to separate the two. So oftentimes when me and Chris are, are talking and what some of the examples you gave where I, I tell him somebody on his team is you know, going this direction, right? And then he says no, or he, you know, something like that. Oftentimes what it has to do is you you just look at what they're doing, why they're doing it, right? Compare that to how they're speaking. If there's a contradiction, experience has just taught me to really watch the contradictions. And then it becomes somewhat predictive of, of next behavior, right? And like I said, the experience of being able to kind of go through painful terminations, to be able to go through deep performance issues, to be able to go dealing with, you know, heavy-handed relationship issues in a peer environment, right? Like a lot of these kind of like very controversial relationships or personality types that I've hired before that, you know, had high expectations on. A lot of those situations, they become almost predictive. But I think the superpower would be very much separating the words from the actions and understanding the gap as opposed to just looking at the complete picture and then trying to make a judgment what's off presented or based off what's been presented, right? So you know, that's where it becomes predictive. And that's where you get to a place where you can kind of see through the noise, I think a little faster than folks who haven't had that experience yet. Super interesting. Chris, do you you have similar heuristics on the the client or operation side? I mean, for it's it's funny, because I'll just comment on on Robert for a second, because it's, it's like, (laughs) one of the hardest things to follow for anyone, I think, and for any young any anyone that's you know younger or just learning to to lead a a larger org is and I said this earlier on the pod as well right when to zoom in and zoom out so it's like you know it, it, one of the funniest things to me that and everyone will know this when when sometimes the boss tells you something that you think you should understand but you don't necessarily understand is he's, Robert's like don't get too into the weeds on this but like know what's important <laughs> and it's like well uh, okay I'm gonna try to figure out you know what's important and what what to actually zoom in on. And that's really hard. That's like your whole job, right? As you get more latitude, as you, as you get a, a wider um, breadth of your responsibilities is figuring out what actually is important. And, you know, part of the the hilarity of that is, of course, you learn that over time because you start seeing the same patterns emerge, right? And you start seeing, okay, this is why this is going to be important. And, and and certain people will be, of course, better at than others. And, you know, the, a lot of judgment is pattern recognition, right? So, but on the client side, it's it's funny enough that very similar to what Robert said and mirrors actually what Robert said on the client side. Clients will lie to you all the time, meaningfully or not. They, they don't necessarily mean to lie to you, right? Sorry. Um, 
Yeah, and they, it's okay. I forgive you. They, they lie to themselves in onboarding a lot, right? About how they yeah. behave and how they're going to behave and how much control they need and how much agency they need. They lie to themselves about how much work they actually have to do. And, and, and when I say lie, I don't mean it in a derogatory sense and I don't mean it in a negative sense. I just mean that people tell themselves stories about themselves all the time, no matter how sophisticated you get, no matter how senior you get. And part of being a good, not good, part of being a great client experience org is understanding what a client actually needs and not what they're telling you that they need. I think that is the, the, the most important thing on the client side that I try to impart on our team is picking up. And, and doing a lot of that pattern recognition, like once you go through and see enough clients and they come through with their different problems and their different pain points, one of the things is actually, and this is actually a, sale, a very common sales technique, right? Is finding that person's pain and, and, and talking it back to them. You find that person's pain and you talk it back to them. If you can get them to feel that pain on a sales call, you can close them, right? We use that in a less uh, salesy and aggressive way. We, we use that same tactic um, in client experience where it's like, you know, no matter what the client is telling you, really try to understand what their real pain is and like what they actually need and the type of person that they are so that you can under, like actually help them in, in the ways that they're going to need help. And, and, and so it, very similar. And it, it's, it's surprising to me that, well, it's not surprising, but, but it, it, a lot of it mirrors one another, right? It's you, you look at what the actions are and how the person is actually behaving is, is how you're going to help them. The uh, an interesting thing with clients too that I, I think is worth a, a call out um, for folks who are you know debating this relationship or, or looking how to improve it is the the clients that refuse to provide the negative feedback like that that's the that's the one that kind of stands out to me all the time which is uh, not providing feedback to the EA so I don't know Chris if you want to highlight it a little bit but I, I think it's worth noting just because we see it so often where if your the EA actually misses expectations, screws something up royally, oftentimes we'll see people not even say anything. They're like, "No, everything's good, right, Chris?" Like, how how often does that happen? Like, pretty often, right? It's definitely one of the bigger stumbling points of clients, and it, it's funny to me because there's this. I don't know if I'm using this. There's kind of like this cognitive dissonance of like because it's an executive assistant, it's like I I, I don't want to. Either I'm I'm tentative to get mad at them, or I don't understand necessarily how to give them feedback. Because don't get me wrong, right? Our client base is—I'll use the word—sophisticated because they are. They're they're leading companies. They're for the most part have managed people or teams before, and it's really it's it's this kind of like mental block of I'm not going to. And this is I think one of the things that's really interesting as well is who do you give feedback to? Who do you care enough to give feedback to? only the people that you like really want to invest in and you you're you're willing to put yourself in a certain amount of you know discomfort to to go ahead and, and give that hard feedback but sometimes there's this mental block around i don't want to give that person feedback because and I, sometimes it's because you know you might not believe in that person or because you don't want to invest in them or because i think it, a lot of it and i maybe robert this is what you were alluding to but i think a lot of it comes back to that guilt of like should i have an executive assistant in the first place which is, it's, it's like yeah. this whole thing that we have to really, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a two-sided thing because they're guilty because they don't think they deserve the EA, but then they get one, but then they're guilty. They, they don't want to be, they don't want to give critical feedback, right? But, I, you know, I, I call it out just because I think that's something that very much needs to be watched, right? Because, I mean, oftentimes, you know, I, I use this example with the EAs a lot when I talk to them is if the client 
you know, just gives you thumbs up all the time, says good thing, but doesn't leverage you very much, or you're not expanding the relationship. It's not taking on new tasks, right? It's, it's basically what they're saying to you is like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Like, and they start to walk away from the relationship. Even if they're not walking away, they can move them somewhere else, but not have that difficult feedback. And as a business owner, investing in your own business, like I mentioned earlier, I just think it's so important that they provide that feedback, you know, good or bad, right? It's, it's difficult to do, but extremely important to do so. And, you know, I, I say to the team, I say, you know, if you're a parent of a child and I've got three, then I love them to death, but the hardest person in the world on them is always going to be me, right? Because uh, I want them to achieve great things, right? I want them to, to get to a place that, you know, they're going to be happy and, and successful. And I think, you know, to some extent, the clients, we've seen that trend in them quite a bit, that that's something that needs to be watched, right? Don't feel guilty for having EA in the first place. And don't feel guilty if you have to give critical feedback. Yeah, that Ivan was really good when we, especially when we first started about asking, asking for feedback, reinforcing how much he, and I'm sure that's a result of your, your coaching, asking how much he wanted it and how much he, you know, benefited from it. The other thing that I, I think Athena is perhaps under, you maybe not give yourself enough credit for is you're, you're a neutral third party and you seek feedback from us as clients continuously that you then have a, a path to sort of feedback and as part of a coaching package and a performance thing and like a improvement system where it's like, you know, even if it's a survey or just a third party or like, Hey, how do I deliver this difficult feedback? It's not you and an EA just like alone in an awkward relationship where, you know, you, where you're like afraid to annoy them because they have a, actually a huge amount of access in your life. And it's this like very, whether it's really positive relationship, you don't want to give negative feedback or a potentially like, oh my God, I'm afraid to offend them, like version of that conversation. Like both are hard for totally different reasons. And Athena addresses both from from my perspective, which I think is um, maybe an underrated benefit. Yeah, well, I, th I think it's it's one of the things that you touched on that you might not have realized you touched on is that, and I said this earlier in the pod too, but it's that your, your relationship with your EA is your most personal professional relationship you'll ever have. And so part of the other reason that folks have a hard time criticizing their EA is it feels like it's a very personal relationship and it feels it's, it's almost like, you know, when you have to give feedback to your wife or your husband, you know, like it's Hey, I, honey, I don't, I don't really like when you do that. You know, that's, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it sounds, yeah. sounds kind of silly. It sounds kind of silly, but it's a very personal professional relationship. And a yeah. lot of everyone it, just got a little stomach ache when you started it, that sentence. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> it feels shitty. And it, you know, um, your EA is, is, is trying to emulate you and they do these, you know, sometimes deep personal things for you. And it's such a personal relationship. And so it can be very awkward to give feedback, hard feedback or good feedback. And it's, it is something where, and I'll use, I'll take the analogy a step further. You say a neutral third party, a lot of our facilitated feedback sessions, honestly mirror what I would, you know, imagine like a marriage counselor looks like in some ways, right. Where it's like, you know, tell me how you feel, tell me how you feel. And making sure that that, you know, is is really how the, the relationship continues to to evolve. And so that's what we really that's part of, you know, what we try to do in, in some of those sessions as well. Every time we talk about this topic or anything else, I, I'm just like so grateful that there are people like you guys thinking so hard about this problem and working so hard on it. It, it has definitely changed my life for the better. And I have recommended Athena to many people already and certainly will continue to. 
I'm so excited to just kind of chip in on this journey and get a seat in the stands to kind of watch where it all goes. I I love what you guys are working on. I love all of the EAs that I've met and what a party Athena throws. Unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable. You had a few drinks uh, while you were there, did you, Eric? (laughs) Did you go to bed early? You did go to bed early. Forced, forced on you. Well, when we were walking through the the beach area there is like everybody's kind of grabbing us trying to <laughs> force drinks down your throat right it's, uh, yeah it's it's uh, yeah. yeah tough tough working conditions over there with the, the with the beach front when the wi-fi reaches the beach and you know and the rum yeah. comes in yeah. coconuts it was great to, great to see the happy group great to see you know such a, a group of people excited about what they're doing right it was yeah absolutely great trip and, and thank you so much for for sharing your experience and, and motivating a lot of the eas about like what the relationship can achieve over time right so thank you so much for for doing that for us as well we we appreciate it you know we have that problem sometimes where we do meetings like this to talk about the client side of the relationship right but it also helps us so much when we can share the the client side of the relationship with the eas so they can get uh, the perspective on what it's like to be a client and and what it's likes to it feels like to be on that side of the equation right it helps them do a better job overall and i think helps expand our our vision as we as we look to continue to grow many of these relationships around the world over the next few years yeah it's an incredibly exciting vision Big, big, big things to do. Absolutely. Lots, lots, Absolutely. Lots do. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for taking a few hours out, out of your, your extremely busy and high leverage schedules to, to hang out with us. And I, I hope this has been impactful for everybody listening. And uh, it brings them a little closer to uh, feeling like they're ready to invest in the corporation of them. Yeah. Just reach out to Chris's email directly. You should. You should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay well uh yeah we'll leave a, a link in the show notes um thank you guys again so much for for the life lessons and the personal lessons and the professional lessons and um it's it's been awesome to get a couple more hours with you i look forward to the next time thank you eric appreciate it it's been a blast thank you so much eric yeah been an absolute pleasure i appreciate you hanging out with us today thank you so much for listening my favorite idea from the pod i think was robert's question about whether you're ready to invest in the corporation of you I think that's a great way to think about it, a great way to think about building your personal leverage, how you manage your career, your family, your investments, and your time. If you feel like you're ready for an EA to be a valuable member of that that company, that company of you, consider Athena. Go to athenago.com, sign up, go through that application, list me as your refer, check out the company. They, They publish a bunch of great stuff. And it's a wonderful crew. If you liked this episode, you will also love another episode featuring EAs with Michelle Penzak, who's the CEO of Squared Away. All of their executive assistants are military spouses all around the US. Uh, It's a wonderful sort of remote job, different take on the EA space. Other episodes that are very focused on kind of the corporation of you, Cody Sanchez, who manages dozens of companies and investments, very interesting systems in that one. And Andrew Wilkinson was one of our early episodes focused on people leverage. All of those are great places to go next if you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Appreciate you. Have a great week and be well. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage.
Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.